Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Democratic debate and dialogue have all but vanished in the United States. There's widespread censorship imposed by social media platforms, private corporations about which we know nothing, while they know everything about us. Mainstream news outlets champion censorship and deplatforming in the name of democracy. Brian Seltzer, for example, on CNN justified banning Donald Trump from social media because, as he said, quote, reducing a liar's reach is not the same as censoring freedom of speech. Sean Hannity on Fox News spent 40 minutes talking over former New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, the same tactic CNBC host Rick Santelli used to shut down debate about COVID-19. The impulse is to silence opponents rather than engage in dialogue and debate. This extreme polarization, as Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zilbalt write, and how democracies die is one of the primary signs of a failing democracy. Nolan Higdon, a lecturer at Merrill College and the Education Department at University of California, Santa Cruz, and Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored and the president of the nonprofit Media Freedom Foundation, joined me to discuss this dangerous inability to communicate among antagonistic groups in the United States, all issues raised in their new book, Let's Agree to Disagree, a Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. Um, I I think this book's a very fine primer, uh, not only in terms of how we can discuss issues, but I think you do a very good job of dissecting the nature of uh, the media itself. Uh, I want to begin with, uh, you actually open it by quoting the great Eldridge Cleaver, but I want to begin um, by uh, this this polarization, uh, this inability to communicate and, and how you believe we got here. Uh, why don't we talk with you, uh, uh, Mickey, first? Well, thanks for having us on, Chris. It's an honor to be here with you. And uh, This is uh, our second book together, Nolan Higdon uh, and I. The first book we did together was called United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. And in that book, we we really outlined uh, at least a half a century of the uh, decay of our uh, social political institutions, uh, privatization, sort of a collapse of the public sphere. So all of this is a, a long time coming. And um, what we noticed in coming out of the, the last book we did together, we had a chapter called Make America Think Again, which we could argue about in terms of its historical accuracy. But the sentiment was that we really need to engage each other on the basis of transparently sourced facts. Uh, we need historical context. Uh, we need to support public institutions as a glue that basically holds us together as a society. And when we were on talks for the last book, a lot of people were really excited about the what we can do and and we're not all gloom and doom and it's not a several hundred page book of, uh, you know, dire warnings and signposts that leaves the reader with three paragraphs of sort of some faux hope somewhere. 
And, and what we did in this book, Let's Agree to Disagree, we can talk about the title too later if you'd like, um, and the many meanings it has for people. We wanted to create, like you said, a primer uh, to, for a how-to, a manual for how to be a critically media literate citizen, to be able to more meaningfully practice civic engagement. And part of that is understanding historically how we got here. And again, there's many, many uh, things that have contributed to this, including the collapse of public education, the enclosure of the commons, increased privatization of just about everything, modification of everything, including information, uh, social identity. And you know, with all of that came sort of the, the growing sensationalism of the corporate media and a real collapse of the fourth estate. So all of these things happening through the 1950s, the 60s, much of this was a reaction in the right from the movements of the 60s, the free speech movement, civil rights movement, the Lewis Powell memo. Um, there was a real concerted effort among the right wing to really sort of, quote, take back the power from the people to control the direction of the society. So in short, uh, you know, we can get into details here and no one can fill in blanks too, but we've been headed here for a long time. And if we're not careful, we may end up where we're heading. So in this book, we start with the idea that it's important that we learn how to communicate, not just critically think, but critically and, and empathically listen to each other to understand. And then we get into understanding a history of why free expression is important and the free press and free speech. Then we get into the tenets of critical thinking. Then we start talking about the importance of understanding theory, ideology, and then we begin deconstructing media and its role in all of this. So it was very methodical, our approach here. I suppose you could say it is textbook classroom centric, right? Uh, the unfortunate thing is as a Rutledge book is the price of it for the classroom. But we try to take as much out of the classroom as possible as we think as a society. Um, the United States of America is desperately in need of the lessons that I think this book teaches. Nolan, I want to ask, uh, I want to juxtapose Manufacturing Consent by Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky uh, because I think the media landscape has changed since they wrote that book, uh, that essentially the media – and you have in your book the, the fact that uh, 90 percent of the media is controlled by six corporations. I think that's right, correct? Uh, are you talking about electronic or are you talking about uh, print as well? That's like the the major six corporations, um, they control what's often referred to as the legacy media, but there's still just a handful of corporations that control digital media as well. So we're looking at about maybe um, 10 or so corporations that control all of the media that, that people use. And I think that's a really important factor when we talk about this because um, increasingly and people of all age groups say they get their quote unquote news from these digital outlets. Um, and as we, we talk about in the, the text, a lot of these digital outlets are moderating content and only allowing um, access to news content that comes from those six major corporations. So in a way, it's exacerbating the problems that have existed uh, since the end of the 20th century. And, and yet the models changed. So uh, when Chomsky and Herman wrote Manufacturing Consent, you had huge media platforms, CBS, three major networks. Uh, they dominated the media landscape and they sought to appeal to a broad demographic. The whole commercial model is different now. Uh, you have media outlets that have essentially created silos where they uh, reach out to a particular demographic, as you note in the book, uh, publications like the Washington Post, the New York Times, NPR, 
uh, cater, MSNBC cater to uh, those who would traditionally vote for the Democratic Party. Fox News, right-wing radio uh, caters to Republicans or the cultists uh, around Trump that have taken over the Republican Party. And that's a very different and that has proved commercially successful. But that is something that is very different from the old media landscape. Uh, and, uh, and, and what comes with that siloing of the demographic is the fostering of antagonism, that you're constantly demonizing, uh, the other. The left does this, the right does this, or let's, I don't know if it's left, let's call it the, the mainstream democratic party figures, uh, the famous Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, attack on Trump voters as deplorables. Um, I want you to talk about that, that different, Nolan, that, that, that difference in that, that's, I think, seismic change in, uh, in, in the media, uh, itself within the United States. And I think we do have to acknowledge that this is, uh, done for commercial reasons. This is, it's done be- because it's commercially viable for for-profit corporations. I completely agree. You, you can't talk about news media in the United States without talking about the commercial interests. And, and to unpack what you, you said a moment ago, uh, which is spot on, the the model traditionally for news media has been to garner the largest audience possible. Um, so you have uh, the left wing and the right wing, uh, as it be watching or reading the same content. But with the advent of cable, uh, we started to see cable news, particularly Fox News, try and target one demographic and maximize that demographic. And this trend was um, exacerbated by the internet, where we started to see legacy media go to the subscriber model, uh, where you tar- you target one group of subscribers uh, and maximize that demographic as well. And, um, you know, they use a lot of tools, honestly, from professional wrestling, which was popular in the late 1990s about you make the audience cheer for the so-called good guy. Um, They boo the character of the so-called bad guy. And we know less and less about the quote-unquote other side because we just have a character of it. And this proves pretty viable in in terms of economics, but for democracy or community, it's uh, disastrous. Um, You know, polls show Americans' number one fear is other Americans. Um, People believe in overwhelmingly huge numbers, the population believe that a civil war is going to happen in the United States in their lifetime. And again, it's largely because of this constant media diet that makes us hate and fear anybody who's different than us and makes us feel absolutely correct in our views and we should go unchallenged. Um, and that's really the story of the ways in which news media are contributing to the problems we describe in the text. I would wonder if it's not really before the Internet. I think it's the rise of right-wing radio. I'll ask Mickey this because I know he knows it. But the abandonment of the fairness doctrine, Ronald Reagan, uh, or at least Ronald Reagan, whoever was Ronald Reagan's brain, uh, realized after his failed presidential bid that he should go on the radio rather than I think he'd been offered uh, the ambassadorship to the U.K. and head of the Republican committee or something. And then you saw the rise of these figures like Rush Limbaugh and uh, Savage. And it's interesting that Donald Trump, who uh, has no ideology 
of his own, essentially parroted back almost word for word. Uh, but Mickey, talk about uh, the uh, walking away from the fairness doctrine and the rise of right wing radio, because I, I think and which all proceed preceded the Internet. But I, I think it's an important element into the corruption of American media. Yeah, Chris, that's unfortunately true. Um, we see the con- the conflict between uh, historical legacy and establishment media uh, corporations, pretty much, and uh, their new technological sort of rivals. And we we see how the the new arrivals often glom on to some ideological ideologically strident position to really attract eyeballs or ears. In this case, and you can go back to the '30s and radio. Uh, the advent of television. We've seen these things. And so by the time you get to the 80s with cable and and the network sort of feuding each other, a lot of attention was focused on on television. Meanwhile, um, a lot in, in uh, the Democratic Party, they they pretty much abandoned the notion of what what was feasible through through radio and AM radio in particular became a fertile ground um, for for what appeared to be, at least on the surface, maybe astroturf, but what looked like a grassroots right wing populist kind of movement, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh kind of speaking for the working farmer or trucker, uh, working people that had, you know, radios on all day, whereas sort of the neoliberal corporate centrists that uh, were manifest in the Clinton regime, right, the Clintons coming in and really shifting the Democratic Party to the right, um, they they were really they didn't champion the fairness doctrine that died in the Reagan years in 1987. And in fact, to double down, the Clintons worked with Newt Gingrich and others in the 1996 Telecom Act, the second major telecom act in U.S. history after the 1934 Telecom Act, which really kind of gutted regulations, allowed for um, corporations to own increased markets, uh, increased shares in markets. And that was manifest, I think, nowhere more explicitly than in radio. And it really blew up. And by not, not, don't forget, 1996 is also the same year that you've got Roger Ailes, former communications advisor in the Reagan administration, working with Rupert Murdoch, kind of the Hearst of our day, uh, to kick off Fox News. But AM radio, the right wing uh, sort of echo chamber of, of Rush Limbaugh, uh, really paved the way for Fox News in a lot of ways. And then... Um, when when the other corporate media cable outlets began to see Fox's ratings because they were constantly appealing to a certain demographic, so they always got consistent ratings, they tried to outfox Fox. Um, and then that's where you get an extraordinary sort of hyper-partisanship among the corporate parties, right? The corporate right, the corporate left, Democrats, Republicans. I mean, we say left, we mean neoliberal centrist, you know, corporate center uh, that the Democrats really sort of represent. But that was the model for media moving into the 20th century. When we add to that the explosion of social media, we really get into a sophisticated algorithmic uh, manipulation that caters to people's confirmation bias. And it even further isolates and silos different demographics so that not only are they only talking to each other, but they're only hearing each other. And in in what's later referred to as a post-truth world, um, everything becomes sort of uh, a matter of opinion, but your opinion is the correct one. Everyone else's is simply wrong. So I see a lot of our current conundrums, which are manifest in big tech and big tech, big tech monopolies uh, with algorithmic gatekeeping and, and censorious control, shadow banning and so on. That seems to me to be a natural outgrowth of the kind of concentration that we saw in radio coming out of the 80s, out of the 90s. And I think that not enough um, I, I don't think enough American media, quote, consumers 
are aware, sort of sleight of hand, that all that was happening, and it was happening by design. And one of the things we really try to do in this book, certainly things we do with Project Censored, is we try to unpack that by teaching critical media literacy, how it's connected to civic engagement. So while we do outline and decry the challenges and problems, we do try to prescribe ways that people can get around this and broaden their media habits and diets in ways that they can really open up the possibility um, that, what, that, that just the things that they think are the only things going on. That was manifest extraordinarily in a recent interview at CNN with Smirkanish and Roger Waters, um, where you have this one establishment media figure that's not even a journalist, just cannot possibly see outside the neoliberal corporate bubble to understand the language that Roger Waters, as more of a cosmopolitan global figure, um, how he thinks and what he's saying. Um, add to it, they distill a 30-minute interview to seven minutes to frame and control the arguments. Well, again, that's that's mastered at Fox, right? That's They were masters of that. But then MSNBC and CNN, they go on to co-opt those tactics. And unfortunately, what we've seen is an extraordinary decay in media that has left this. Now, only about 16% of the American public has a favorable view of legacy and establishment media, which is why we need to focus more and more on intrepid investigative reporting, the kind of reporting that you're known for doing, Chris, and the kinds of reporters that we highlight every year in our annual reports at Project Censored. So there is hope, but it's connected to a lot of work. And it's the kind of work that we all have to be willing to put in because democracy is not a spectator sport. And we really need to remind people that civic engagement is a crucial, uh, a real crucial feature to trying to wrest control from these handful of corporations that control not only our communications landscape, but increasingly our entire civic sphere. I think one of the strongest parts of your book is that uh, dissection of the media to provide what you call media literacy, give very strong examples of how Bernie Sanders uh, facts are manipulated uh, to create impressions. I won't go into it now, but and this was MSNBC. It was all of the media it was essentially working to minimize uh, Sanders' clout in the primaries. Um, but I want to go back to the fairness doctrine. Uh, you should, Mickey, explain what it was because it was really set up to prevent uh, the kind of corruption within the media landscape that has now taken place. Yeah, Chris, the, the Fairness Doctrine coming out of the 19, late 40s, you know, post-World War II, around the same time, the United Nations, um, you know, Declaration of Human Rights, Article 19, pro-freedom of expression, the right to impart ideas and also hear them. Uh, the Fairness Doctrine comes out of that spirit uh, and goes up through 1987 uh, when sort of politically the support for it collapses as we get more and more hyper-partisan in the Reagan but, but expla years. But explain what it did because it was an it, important it, instrument. It mandated that you had equal time for different sides and different views. It meant that the media needed to, uh, and again, there's more than two sides, so I don't want to oversimplify this. But the point is, is it meant that if you were going to be featuring uh, figures that had a certain view, it meant that the media had an obligation to find other sides, other views, and present those in a fair, transparent way to the public so that the public could then decide on the basis of all the views that were being presented with the assumption that these were um, a relative sampling of most of the main views about societal affairs. And so it was sort of um, a regulator, if you will, right? The fairness doctrine, a regulator of fairness that simply meant that people had um, a likely or a realistic kind of expectation that they would be hearing 
from as many important sides as existed and that there was a good faith effort to impart that information. And then it was expected that the public could be trusted to make up their decisions, to to make up their minds on the basis of the factual material that had been presented with the persuasive arguments that went along with them. When that collapsed, there was no longer an obligation to it. But worse, I would argue, there was no longer any pretense, right? And that's what I was saying earlier when I was kind of going off about the history of it, is that we lost even the, the desirability uh, to achieve in any any semblance of what was objective debate and discourse about key issues that we face as a society. Nolan, I, I want to raise the issue because there were attempts uh, by liberals and leftists uh, to counter the rise of right-wing media, most famously Air America. I used to be on, especially Mark Marin's show quite a bit. Um, and it failed. Uh, it failed for two reasons. One, it wasn't commercially viable because these right-wing talk shows bring in staggering sums of money. It's why radio stations, why they proliferated throughout radio stations. But I think the other important point is that they dealt in nuance. And in the new media landscape, nuance became a kind of anathema. I wonder if you could speak about that. Yeah, we do. have. Um, <clears throat> that's a great point. We do have a, a media system that sort of just over oversimplifies. Um, but, but I think your, your point gets to something deeper, which is if you turn on something like Air America, there was a version of it, um, or if it was around today, uh, it, it's speaking a totally different language than what people are used to. Uh, Mickey a moment ago brought up uh, the Roger Waters interview on CNN with Smirconish. And um, it wasn't even necessarily that Smirconish was uh, arguing against what Roger Waters was saying. He just didn't understand it. Waters is a totally different frame, a totally different historical understanding. And I think that reflects how a lot of audience members are. Um, they, they're very used to this Republican versus Democratic Party frame of all issues. And if you operate outside of that frame, it's almost like speaking a different language. And that's why Mickey and I really center critical media literacy in the, in the text uh, with the hope that we can uh, use the classroom to get people better prepared to recognize these frames, um, recognize the ways in which um, these narratives reduce what we, what we listen to, what we read, what we see. Um, so I think I think that's sort of uh, one of the the problems or one of the, I guess the challenges that a lot of so-called alternative media faces against the the legacy media megaphone. Well, I see a kind of cynicism in it. So f- there are only two sides in let's call it the legacy media or mainstream media. That's Republican and Democrat. So you have a very well-paid host posing as a journalist, uh, and he allows a Republican operative to lie for a minute and a half or whatever it is, and then he allows a Democratic operative to lie for a minute and a half. And the person moderating the discussion may be quite aware that both sides are mendacious, uh, but they kind of walk away as if they've done their job. Is that correct, Nolan? Yeah, that pretty much sums up the average segments. Um, You know, they get two or three people from the two major parties um, into a five-minute segment where they're supposed to debate, and debate means yell over each other um, for five minutes. And that, that's what people's understanding is of news media. So if you have, uh, a, you know, something like a real news network or something, um, it's completely different than what a lot of audience members are, are used to in that sense. And, and I think breaking that frame is a really important challenge um, those in alternative media face. So, Mickey, throughout the book, uh, if I'm going to pull out the two most salient 
points. One, of course, I think is media literacy. I think understanding how the media works is key, and you do a good job of explaining that. But the other is building uh, a discourse, a national discourse that's rooted in verifiable fact, because you can't really communicate with somebody that is uh, believes QAnon or thinks uh, dinosaurs uh, actually uh, lived in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It's, I mean, I found this with the Christian right. Uh, and uh, you you raise this as a point uh, in the book uh, as a kind of fundamental by which uh, communication is possible. And yet we live now in a fact-free world. I wonder if you can just, I, I mean, it's just verifiable fact, whether it's Russiagate, which wasn't verifiable fact, or, uh, the, you know, the election was stolen from Trump, which doesn't, both sides are doing it. Uh, and, and I wonder if you can address that, Mickey. Yeah, Chris, that's that's the conundrum of, of what's referred to as the post-truth world. And, um, you know, if we go back to the 2016 election, um, that's where we have uh, the Oxford Dictionary declaring uh, post-truth as word of the year, hyphenated word or phrase of the year, um, marking sort of this postmodern shift in the political landscape where uh, there are these it, there are these competing truths, but they're they're actually not meant to compete. Uh, the whole uh, edifice of the news media as wrestling ring with the people talking past each other and the moderator pretending that, well, now you decide, we report, you decide. Uh, there's not much to decide because one of the magic words you used a little bit ago was nuance. Um, in other words, devils and details. Um, the corporate news media give no time for nuance. They give no time to dissect uh, fact claims that are that are stated to be factual. Uh, fact checking itself has become an extraordinary political and ideologically driven endeavor. Um, right, we're we're part of the post truth conundrum is that, you know, the USA Today, which is one of the largest circulating newspapers in the United States, is also a certified fact checker for social media. Yet, you know, Nolan just wrote a piece not long ago, you know, decrying some of the biases and many significant problems with USA Today. The Atlantic Council, a PR arm of NATO, is a fact checker for Meta and Facebook. These are extraordinary problems. And so we need to not outsource critical thought, need not outsource critical thinking. We need to reclaim it. And we need to really demand that journalism, uh, when operating in an ethical framework, does seek to be truthful and objective in a way where facts are transparently sourced, biases are clearly labeled or listed or called out. There has to be room for disagreement, not character assassination. Uh, and again, I'm going to go back to what you said again with nuance, because that's something, again, that our culture lacks so extraordinarily. We're an outrage culture. Um, and there's no room for nuance and outrage. And if you don't respond, if you don't virtue signal to the proper outrage of the left or of the right, um, then you're just not included in the voice and you're immediately cast aside. If I criticize some, the U.S. support for Ukraine, I'm suddenly pro-Putin and a Trumper. Uh, if I somehow uh, decry um, yeah, foreign influence in elections, uh, you know, I'm somehow something else. You, you fill in the blanks. We could talk all day about the examples. But what we do in this text, Chris, is we try to get away from that and we try to give, sorry for the, the, the cliche, but we try to give people tools, if you will, for a critical media literacy toolbox that enables them to understand, deconstruct, dissect media messages, political messages in a way 
that people can ask the right questions. They can talk to each other, not be atomized just through mediated screens, but we encourage people to actually talk to one another. That's not what happens on antisocial media. We need to actually be out in real life and we need to be talking. We need real FaceTime, right? Not Facebook. And this is the kind of thing that we call for at the end. And we, we, we do this in ways by also calling out important best practices for critical listening, for hearing views different than our own. We highlight, there's a lot of people on both ideological sides that talk about those people can't be reached. The Trumpers, the neo-Nazis, they can't be talked to. The woke, uh, the woke uh, people over here, the people that are woke indoctrinating, they can't be reached and talked to. We have to censor these people on the right or the left. You know, Daryl Davis, an African-American musician, collected over 200 hoods of KKK Klansmen, right? Because he went out and talked to them about the racism they have. And we highlight that model in the book as somebody that, you know, puts themselves in extraordinarily uncomfortable positions to confront why people believe such nonsense and believe hateful ideologies. It's often because they're not engaged in their critical faculties and they are fearful. And we need to address that head on as best as possible. If we want to talk about any kind of allyship, we need to have an allyship with facts, reason, logic, and empathy. And that's what we really kind of call for in the book. And we really hope people will practice what we're trying to teach. Well, just to close, Nolan, the only problem that I see, I mean, you're of course right, and I like the book very much, is that a lot of these non-reality-based belief systems serve an emotional purpose. They serve as a kind of vent for alienation, disenfranchisement, rage, I would even argue often a legitimate rage. And you, you, I think, Mickey, you raised the thing about professional wrestling. Taibi raises that too in his book, Hate, Inc., which is very good. And you're right. Uh, and I actually opened my book, Empire of Illusion, by writing about professional wrestling. And what was interesting is that nobody in the arena, I was in Madison Square Garden, actually believed that it was real. But they were so emotionally involved in the storyline that it didn't matter. And I think that's what – how do you – I guess we'll close, Nolan, with that. We just have a minute left. How do you overcome that? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we, we not only cover um, ways in which to procure constructive dialogue, we also talk about destructive dialogue. <clears throat> you need a certain sense of um, reciprocity and respect for each other. You need to recognize that people do have – hate, fear, anger, emotional needs. And if you're really going to try and be constructive, you need to um, recognize those and you need to manage those, not lampoon the person, insult them or name call. So the text is as much um, about examining and deconstructing other people as it is self-reflection. You know, what can you do as the individual to procure a more constructive environment, um, one that respects um, the other person where you demonstrate things like decency, integrity, and credibility? Great. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.